the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You will have noticed that I am not, in fact, the Reverend Jason Eslicker, who was scheduled to preach today. Rachel and Jason have had a death in the family and are in Texas to attend the funeral. So I thought about the 30-page paper I wrote on that amazing passage from Philippians, but I have decided to spare you that. What follows is drawn in part from a reflection that I saved some years ago by a Lutheran pastor named David Lowe. I liked it because he asks good questions. And questions are always a good place to start when we're reading a passage from Scripture. It's good to clarify what we don't know, what we do know, and what we might be assuming. One thing we do know about Jesus' parable about a father and two sons is that it's a response to the question of authority. We don't know if this behavior was typical of these sons or just what happened this one time. We don't know if the sons talked to each other or to their father after their initial response. We don't know what may have prevented or caused either of the sons to do the exact opposite of what they had said they would do. And we don't even know exactly why Jesus told this parable or why Matthew decided to share it. So what do we know? Mainly that the son who said he'd show up and work did not, and the son who at first refused to work changed his mind and did. We also know that most of us would probably agree that actions speak louder than words, and therefore that the first son, despite his bratty refusal to do what his father asked, is the one who actually did the will of his father. And we know that Jesus links this parable and the response of the tax collectors and prostitutes to the good news of the coming kingdom. A lot of what we don't know has to do with motivation and circumstances. This is true, of course, not only of our interaction with these characters, these sons and their father, but also with one another. We don't know what motivates our sisters and brothers to come or not come to church. We don't know what motivates one person to give generously and another not to do so. We don't know what is behind the religious and political beliefs of the people with whom we worship. We don't know why one couple in our congregation is struggling while another celebrates their 40th anniversary, or why some of us seem so clear in our faith while others of us constantly struggle with doubt. We don't know these things. We may guess, just as we may guess about this father and his two sons, we may make assumptions and judgments, but ultimately we don't know. And that not knowing should lead us to be cautious 
or more precisely, humble in our judgments about our neighbors. This parable and its coming at this point in Matthew's gospel highlights the increasing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities of the day, the first century equivalent of the vestry, the altar guild, the Sunday school teachers, the clergy and commission chairs, and builds the case against those leaders for their failure. They fail to answer Jesus's question about John's authority. They fail to accept his message, and they fail to recognize in Jesus God's promised Messiah. Given their similarity to church folk like ourselves, that should leave us more humble than condescending about their blindness, worried even. But I also wonder if this parable offers a word of surprise and hope What about the surprising possibility of hope that someone who has refused to listen to God may yet change her or his mind? Or hope that it's never too late to respond to the grace of the gospel? That's a hope I could use more of as I read the news each day. How about the hope that one's past actions or current status do not determine one's future, which remains in the hands of God? Hope that even those whom responsible folks like chief priests and elders have decided are beyond the pale are never, ever beyond the reach of God. That goes for the chief priests and the elders as well. If this is so, then perhaps our takeaway might be that no matter our past, God is eager to meet us in the present and invite us into an open future. There is a word of hope. It's not too late. In terms of God, it is never too late. God is here inviting each of us into the kingdom that not only beckons us into a hope-filled future, but that can shape every moment of our lives starting this very minute. This is something, I think, of what is meant by eternal life with God. Each and every moment holds the possibility of receiving God's grace, repenting of things we've done or forgiving things that were done to us, returning to right relationship with God and those around us, and receiving the future as full of possibility and promise rather than unalterably shaped by the past. It's precisely because of this, in fact, that we reckon with the history of white supremacy, We learn to see and name the ways in which the sin of the past shapes our lives in the present by way of asking the Holy Spirit to lead us into a renewed future together. If that is so, if God meets us in the here and now to lead us ever more deeply into life in God's kingdom, then how does God's promise about that future shape our life today? What is holding us back from receiving all that God promises? What are we holding on to that makes it difficult to believe and accept God's forgiveness or to imagine that the future can be different than the past? God knows us. God knows our history, our faults, our sins, our promises made but not kept or not made but then kept. Whatever we carry and whoever we are, God is reaching out to us with the gift of acceptance and love and forgiveness that define God's kingdom. And God offers that gift not only to those of us gathered here this morning, but to all of God's children, those we despise as well as those we love. 
You don't need me to tell you that we live in a time of division. Our government almost shut down last night because of it. Whose authority we trust is heavily dependent on where we get our news. But we didn't invent division and strife. Jesus speaks into a moment of as much polarization as ours is. And without for a moment discounting the seriousness of those divisions then or now, Jesus teaches that God still offers, still insists on a future reconciliation with God and one another. What's more, God calls us to inhabit that future starting this very moment. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. But this is just it. John came. The prophets came before him again and again. And now here is Jesus. God's revelation is God's invitation. God invites us to see, accept, and respond to God's gracious gift and live into the future God has prepared for us. Have we accepted but then turned away? Have we refused the invitation but later reconsidered? Whatever the case, wherever we are, God is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. We have reason to hope. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.